It's June 30th, 1895. In Indianapolis, Indiana, the city is buzzing with energy. Cycling is all the rage, and there's an annual 75-mile road race that has everyone excited. Lining the streets are thousands of fans braving the muggy weather and dark, cloudy skies. Down at the starting line, 36 of the area's fastest amateur cyclists are mounted on their bikes, ready to compete for a $300 prize. The starting pistol fires, unleashing a loud crack. As the first pedals and wheels begin to turn, 17-year-old Marshall Walter Taylor, better known as Major Taylor, emerges from behind a bush. He's got a bike with him, and he hops on it, pedaling his way toward the group of riders. He's not there to crash the event. He's the official 37th cyclist. But his allies, his trainer and the race sponsor, are the only ones who know that. Now that he's out in the open, though, his secret won't stay a secret for long. You see, in this group of riders, Major Taylor stands out big time. He's the only black cyclist. And he's been giving Indianapolis cyclists hell, racing white riders, beating them, and their records. He's been banned from some of the local racetracks, and cyclists have been refusing to race when he shows up. So he's resorted to hiding in the bushes till after the race has started they aren't going to be thrilled to see him on the road today. He reaches the group, no longer able to resist the urge to blow past them. As he speeds by the all-white riders, in that instant, he knows it's on. Maybe sensing the day's tension, the sky opens, dumping rain on Major and the other cyclists. The cyclists begin to hurl threats and racial slurs with the same speed and fury they use to propel their bikes. Major pedals harder to get ahead of the chaos, but then finds himself dodging riders as they try to push him off his bike. He's in defense mode now, mentally channeling the rage of the white cyclists into fuel as he rides into the final 30 miles. Soon he's ahead and so far gone, it's not even a competition anymore. Through rain, mud, and hatred, he cycles to victory, the lone rider to complete the race that soggy day. He turned pro a year later. Three years after that, he won the Track Cycling World Championships. Surprised to hear that a black man was a crucial part of cycling all the way back then? Well, you shouldn't be. From Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is They Did That. A different kind of history show. I'm Takara Small. Today, how Major Taylor, the fastest man in the world and one of the greatest cyclists of all time made history and then raced into obscurity and why he still matters today. Stay with us. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In the late 1800s, one invention was taking the United States by storm. The bicycle. 
Bikes were being mass-produced and knocked horses out of the top spot as the main method of transportation. They gave men and women the freedom to travel, and even influenced fashion trends by introducing bloomers, so women could ditch their Victorian skirts and really ride. But biking wasn't just a leisurely pursuit. For the more daring, it quickly became competitive too. The sport of cycling is the biggest sport in the United States at this time, and also around the world. That's Rasan Bahadi, 10-time U.S. champion cyclist and one of the first black cyclists to be signed to a world tour team. Because of his own trailblazing rise in the sport, he's been referred to as the next major tailor. In a rural town on the outskirts of Indianapolis, Indiana, it was a long shot for a poor black family in the Jim Crow era, like the Taylors, to have enough money to afford a bicycle. Like most things flashy and new, it came with a hefty price tag that made it exclusive. In 1886, Gilbert Taylor's job as a coachman for a wealthy white family gave his eight-year-old son Marshall an opportunity that would change his life in a way neither of them probably saw coming. Marshall, the restless but most ambitious of his eight siblings, would tag along to his dad's job and help care for the horses. He befriended the young boy of the family that his dad worked for and soon found himself employed by the family as a live-in companion and playmate for their son. He was educated alongside his friend, had access to a playroom filled with toys he'd never seen, and when the family bought a bicycle for their kid, Marshall was gifted one too. He was immediately hooked. By the time he's 13, he was a seasoned hobby rider. He'd race his friends for fun, learned cool tricks, and zipped around the Indianapolis area working as a paperboy. A bike problem took him to a repair shop in town, where you could say the course of his destiny was charted. An excited Marshall gets his newly repaired bike back and tests it out by doing a burst of stunts. Marshall Taylor was doing tricks in front of a store. I don't know what kind of tricks he was doing back then on a little like what we would call today like a BMX bike, but obviously he was very talented on two wheels. That talent caught the eye of everyone around him, including the store owner who noticed something greater. The store owner, he noticed that him doing these tricks was actually drawing attention to his storefront. Stunned, Tom Hay, the shop owner, sees an opportunity or more like in Marshall, he saw the 1891 version of a sign twirler to help usher people into his business. He makes him an offer he can't refuse. A job paying $6 a week and a new bike. The terms of the gig didn't end there, though. Every twirler needs a little pizzazz to capture the attention of folks walking by. So the store owner came up with a special gimmick for Marshall. He'd perform his bike trick routine while wearing an eye-catching military uniform. Legend has it, someone walking by sees Marshall in his flashy costume, they pull a random military rank out of thin air, and boom, Marshall Taylor becomes Major Taylor. He quickly goes from trick-riding advertising to getting his first taste of competition at a local 10-mile distance race his boss is sponsoring. He's just there to watch when Tom, the shop owner, encourages Major to join, saying... I know you can't go the full distance, but just ride up the road a little way. We'll please the crowd, and you can come back as soon as you get tired. His intro to the racing life starts out with a bang. Major is terrified. He's never ridden so far before. And on top of that, at 13, he's the youngest and smallest of all the cyclists. But 
he's naturally competitive. So he joins the competition, and not only does he win, he beats everyone by a six-second lead. He collapses when it's all over, but he's obsessed. He doesn't stop at distance races, though. Major wants to show he can race all kinds of ways. He saves money from his job at the bike shop and in the summer of 1892 travels three hours south to Peoria, Illinois, the mecca of bike racing. There, the competitive cycling culture was all about track racing. Large crowds and reporters flocked to these events to watch predominantly white riders speed around on tracks called velodromes, like lightning on wheels. Imagine it looking like a toilet bowl, but made out of wood. And most tracks are made 333 meters around. They're not all the same. Some straightaways are short, some straightaways are long, some of the turns are shorter, some of them are longer. And in the turns, they are banked, which could be up to about seven stories high from the bottom to the top. This dramatic track makes for a lively race for cyclists, but it can be dangerous. Racing on a velodrome is a little nerve-wracking. I call it blind faith. You're out there with 15, 20, 30 people, and all it takes is one person to make a mistake, and the entire group that we call a peloton, the entire peloton could go crashing down. While the cyclists stay focused and in the zone, folks in the stands are mesmerized by all the action. You feel the energy and the power that's coming out of these athletes, and they're so close to you uh, on a velodrome. Oftentimes, you could hear the planks of the wood kind of like smacking against each other as the force of the riders push their weight around the track. So it was really action-packed. It's like watching NASCAR on bikes. His first time riding this insane track, Major places third in the under-16 category. No matter the kind of race, he could win it. Major and a bike. It was like an extension of his body. They just made sense together. It's like he knows this is his calling, but he'd learned to see this calling as bigger than the sport. Here's his mission in his own words. We ask no special favor or advantage over other groups in this great game of life. We only ask for an even break. He was raised in a religious household and in his values found a significant meaning in choosing this path. He wanted to show that black folks, and in this specific case, black athletes, were equal. Only two generations removed from slavery. Like, literally, his own grandfather had been enslaved. I have to imagine that Major realized the magnitude of what it would mean to enter this sport. You have to know at that time that you're going to be marginalized, you're going to be hated. There were no notable or revered pro-Black cyclists at the time. Major was signing up for a lonely, challenging, and dangerous ride. But instilled with a strong work ethic and that strong spiritual center thanks to his parents, Major knows he can be the best, period. But he need help to get there. One thing that he did have that helped him was some of the people that actually helped him break into the sport were white. In 1893, two years after his first race, Major Taylor happened to meet just the guy, Lewis Birdie Munger, a well-known former high-wheel champion racer and entrepreneur. When Birdie wasn't selling bikes he designed, he was nerding out with other cycling enthusiasts at local shops 
like H.T. Hershey's, the bike shop where then 15-year-old Major Taylor was a riding instructor to white customers. When they meet, it's magic. The two are kindred spirits. In Birdie, Major finds someone he can talk to who lived his racing dream and has a top-of-the-line bike that he was dying to try out. In Major, Birdie saw someone with professional promise and the same hunger for racing that he once had. Birdie poured all of his knowledge into Major. They cycled together. They trained doing distance and track competitions, so he learned the sport inside and out. They built a solid amateur cycling foundation for Major, preparing him to take things to the next level. Major took it all in, and the results of his dedication showed. He was kind of like this unicorn because not only was he a sprinter, he was good at the distance stuff as well, where in modern cycling, you're really not good at both. You have to pick one or the other. His talent and progress were indisputable, but the real work was just about to begin. Coming up, Major gets banned for winning while black and fights like hell for his rightful place back on the track. More on that after the break. Have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Major wasn't allowed to officially compete against white riders. He'd race after they finished and would beat their times, but it wouldn't count. He was on the sidelines, and white racers who didn't want to be embarrassed by losing to a black man were pressuring track owners to not let Major race at all. So he started getting banned from Indianapolis tracks. No, this is outrageous, but I'm not surprised. Snuff out the excellence to protect your mediocrity right? His manager, Birdie, wasn't having it. Major was a champ, and he needed to be able to enter a race to win it. So in 1895, Major moved with his coach to Worcester, Massachusetts, in the name of opportunity. Major was just 16 years old at the time. But like elite athletes everywhere, he needed to be able to compete, and so he left home. It was supposed to be more tolerant than Indiana, or at least that was the idea. Major easily got access to places like the local YMCA to train, but on the racetracks, things proved to be almost the same. At a race in New Jersey, attended by 20,000 people, Major found himself going head-to-head with the race leader. In the last half mile, out of nowhere, someone dumps a bucket of ice water in Major's face. He's startled, but manages to keep control of his bike. He loses his lead, though, and he ends up in 23rd place. No matter what they threw at Major or on him, he wanted the big stage, and a race was about to go down in New York City at Madison Square Garden. But Major needed a license to race as a pro, and the League of American Wheelmen, racing's governing body, didn't give black folks membership. Bertie had friends in high places, though, 
William Brady, an Irish Broadway producer with ties to Madison Square Garden, went to bat for Major. They'd been friendly because of the birdie connection. He'd watch him race and would even just watch him train. He knew he had what it took. He was also empathetic to Major's struggles because being Irish, he faced a kind of discrimination of his own. Now, it was leaps and bounds different from Major as a black man, but that small amount of compassion was more than most possessed. Now, we don't know how this totally went down, but William Brady reportedly contacted several men close to the board and demanded they throw their weight around to get Major his license. Whatever he said, and however he said it, Brady was known for his sharp tongue. The league agreed to give Major the license. Major had followed his heart. He moved across the country. It was a true act of faith. He believed that if he continued to show up, race, and be great, things could change. Well, with the Broadway producer fighting on Major's behalf to get him that license, it was being confirmed. He'd been waiting years, and the day had finally arrived. Major Taylor couldn't have asked for a more exciting professional debut. On December 5, 1896, the stands at Madison Square Garden were packed with 5,000 roaring spectators. 18-year-old Major Taylor was up against fierce competition that included Eddie Cannonball, the two-time U.S. sprint champion loved by all. In a five-lap showdown, they go head-to-head. Major outsmarting the seasoned riders, making them think he's some overly eager newbie who sped up ahead and would lose his steam. But he was no newbie. With Cannon gunning to close the lead, Major gives it one last push and his front wheel crosses the tape. It's over. Here's Rassam Bahadi again. As a bike racer, it's one of the most exciting feelings to be in a peloton surrounded by 20 plus riders and then be the one to cross the line first. Major Taylor had won his first professional race, besting America's sprint champion. No one in the room could believe it, but I'd like to think Major did. Major was off to the races. He was ready to dominate no matter the competition. As part of the same multi-day event in New York, Major captured the attention of the press and cycling fans around the world in a grueling six-day racing event. Imagine selling out Madison Square Garden and people will come and go and see racers race for six days. Just come and go. Six-day races were exactly what it says. You raced six days straight. It was up to you how much time you took off. You could imagine the type of amphetamines they were on back then to stay up and complete the six days. Exhausted riders were dropping like flies. Major only slept one hour for every eight hours he rode. The man was a machine. By day six, Major's name had reached the farthest corners of the New York area, and a sold-out crowd packed the garden. Major, whose distance best was a 75-mile race, completed a total of 1,732 miles in 142 hours of racing, and finished in eighth place. His experience at Madison Square Garden kicked his career into gear in more ways than one. Within weeks of the race, news coverage about Major Taylor exploded. In the first several months of his career, he found his lane in one-mile sprinting events 
and racked up win after win. The public coined him with nicknames like the Black Cyclone and Worcester Whirlwind. You had thousands of people go into a venue to watch not only cycling, but they wanted to see this Black man who was better than them, and they couldn't believe it. They had to see it with their own eyes. Major even drew celebrities. President Roosevelt and influential Black folks like Booker T. Washington came to watch him race. But for the folks on the track with him, I bet you can tell where this is going. Getting dominated by a Black man was the last thing they wanted. Now, cycling is a sport of strategy, and riders did mental gymnastics trying to find ways to best major on their own. But they took it further and banded together, even though they were opponents, to take him down. There's a lot of tactics and, and outmaneuvering and also really trying to like outplay the competitors. Racers took note of their competitors' riding habits. That way they could spot an in and use it to their advantage to try and sprint ahead. Or they would look for a way to box a rider into a spot that would keep them deadlocked, basically ensuring they'd place lower. This is the move that often took teamwork. If you think everyone was racing against each other, that's one thing. But when you put yourself in Major Taylor's shoes, you had sometimes 10 people racing against one person, which makes it extremely challenging. But Major's mind was sharper than most. His negative past experiences had taught him to be quick to strategize for his own safety and the win. He knew how to spot an incoming threat dive down the track at the best moment to swerve it, or use his power to his advantage to keep an insane lead that kept him out of dodge, exhausting his competitors. When you have someone like Major Taylor who can beat you, not only with his legs, but with his brain, you're almost at a deficit as soon as you get to the line because you don't know where he's gonna be that day. Like literally everyone was against him. You can't literally outrun everyone. So if you can't outrun everyone, what do you do? You outsmart him. He was great against odds few could imagine, but he'd never brag or taunt his competitors. He was determined to lead by example. He just felt like everyone was the same. Even though he knew walking down the street as a white man and a black man, society doesn't look at you as equal. He felt in his heart that they were equal. And I think one's vision of self will overcome all the other negativity. And if it wasn't other riders trying to harm him, it was the wider mistreatment of Black people by the greater public that fought to break him, too. Major Taylor was spit on, called names. The bus left him on purpose. He showed up to a hotel in the middle of the night. They said they didn't have a room for him. You know, I mean, there's so many different stories that I can go on and on with. Yet, he showed up the next day and raced his bike. There were times, though, when Major's strategy couldn't help him escape the takedown attempts on the racetrack. In September 1897, Major competed at the One Mile Massachusetts Open. His nerves were already on 10. A headline in a local paper read, Taylor's life in danger. His opponent that day, William Becker, was a showboat attention seeker who'd been jealous of Major's wins and attention. So he let him know. After Major places second, Becker, who comes in just behind him in third place, attacks Major before he can even catch his breath post-ride. He claims Major had been crowding him during the ride, something no one else saw because it totally didn't happen. He chokes him, keeping Major in his grip for so long, Major passes out and is unconscious for nearly 20 minutes. Becker gets a slap on the wrist and pays a $50 fine, 
but is allowed to continue racing. Like he'd always done before, Major Taylor bounced back from the attack, literally traveling to the next race the following day. And sad to say, the chaos didn't end. Forced crashes were a favorite play by his competitors, but even though it was totally wrong and messed up, Major couldn't react. All he could do was lean on his faith. Major Taylor did do what was right. He didn't retaliate. The sad part is if he does retaliate, 100% he's out of the sport. They would have found a way to make sure he never returned to the sport. A lifetime ban for retaliating for whatever situation. And, and yet he was able to stand up, literally dust himself off and keep going, which is, that's special. His fortitude and determination all paid off when in 1899, Major traveled to Montreal, Canada for his biggest event yet, the World Track Cycling Championships. He competed in his tried and true event, the one-mile sprint, giving his all and in a close finish bested all the global competitors. This was what he'd been working towards since that first race at the age of 13. He could finally say without a doubt that he was the fastest man in the world. And with this win, he also became the first African-American to win a world championship in cycling and the second Black athlete to win a championship in any sport, period. At the peak of his cycling career, Major Taylor established seven world records, one that would stand for 28 years. He pulled in crowds the sport had never seen before and made countless money for race sponsors and the venues that hosted his races. He didn't do too bad for himself either. He was the highest paid athlete at the time. Major Taylor was good for cycling, but in the United States, cycling wasn't good to him. Race sponsors would try and bar him from competing, and racers in cahoots with each other would refuse to race against him. It was never ending. They would rather lose money than to give him the opportunity. That just goes to show you that, I mean, I, it's hard for me to put into words, but they would rather die to see him succeed, you know? They'd rather go hungry to see him succeed. Major accomplished his dream of being the best cyclist in the world. Up to that point, probably the GOAT as well. But his other goal of convincing white Americans everyone's equal was harder. That's after the break. In 1901, Major decided if racing in the States wasn't going to work, he was going to leave. He'd go somewhere he could be appreciated and that had a whole new set of riders for him to unleash his competitive side on and more importantly, beat. I think he was more of a celebrity outside of the United States than he was inside. When you don't see someone, it creates a different buzz. You know, what is this about this Major Taylor guy? I know he's been racing in America for years. I heard he's coming here. He's on a boat. He'll be here in a month. And so this anticipation of seeing something that they've never seen before, and they actually welcome him with open arms. He spends time in France where he rips through the best of the best European riders. France is so happy to have him, they change big races from Sundays to Saturdays. So Major, who never raced on Sundays because of his faith, would be able to compete. In 1904, international racing takes him to an even more exotic land, Australia, 
where the fanfare is even greater, and Major gets paid top dollar for races and appearances. But this is where he's reminded that hate isn't just limited to the U.S. At a race in Melbourne, Major's set to compete against a Swedish cyclist, Ivar Lawson. They'd been on earlier circuits together, and that was enough for Lawson to have grown tired of Major's wins and jealous of his more lucrative paydays. They go head-to-head in one of the most energetic races seen in Australia. Lawson and Major exchanging leads, keeping everyone on the edge of their seats. As the bell rings to signal the final turn in the race, Major pounds on his pedals, sweeping past Lawson. Lawson's enraged. He powers up alongside Major and, in a wild move, steers his bike right into Major's front wheel. It sends him flying. Could you imagine if you're on a bike and someone just, like, kicks your front wheel? And back then, they didn't even wear helmets. So now, you know, your head's busted, you're concussed. Someone said this, and I think this is a great analogy. Crashing on a bike, it's like being in your car going 40 miles an hour with no clothes on, and you open the door and just jump out. That's what crashing on a bike feels like. And it's completely right. Lawson was suspended from racing globally anywhere in the world for a year. Major was horribly injured. He was hospitalized and remained in hospital until he fully recovered. Eventually, he returns to the United States and takes a two and a half year break from cycling because the mental and physical strain had finally bested him. He returns to cycling for a short comeback, but by 1910, he realizes he's aged out of the sport and looks forward to a peaceful retirement. It doesn't turn out that way, though. The fortune he'd built gets wiped out in a series of unfortunate events, including poor investments like self-publishing his autobiography. What's left gets gobbled up in the 1929 stock market crash. He relocated to Chicago, where he lived in a YMCA until he died in 1932 from a heart attack at age 53. A devastating end to a man who always seemed unbreakable. It wasn't like he was a guy working in a steel mill for the last 25 years, 30 years. He was a well-tuned athlete that didn't take drugs, didn't drink, you know, very healthy. And I just think America beat him down enough to where he was sad enough to have a heart attack. Major's resilience had seemed otherworldly. He'd overcome so much, held his head high time and time again. But maybe this last blow from the country he loved was just too much to bear. Every person has a breaking point. I just wish that he was given the opportunity to be that American hero as his counterparts were and taken care of and really put on a pedestal for doing so many great things for society. Major's family didn't immediately learn about his death. So when no one claimed his remains, he was buried in an unmarked grave. It would take until 1948 for a group of professional cyclists to figure it out and have him exhumed and buried in a proper place. The plaque on his grave, so befitting of his character and heart, reads, World champion bicycle racer who came up the hard way without hatred in his heart. An honest, courageous, and God-fearing, clean-living, gentlemanly athlete. A credit to his race who always gave out his best. Gone, but not forgotten.
though Major did end up being forgotten to a certain extent. After cars became the hot invention and cycling lost its popularity, his name was lost with it. Rasan has become the champion of Major Taylor. When he learned about Major at age 15 after joining a cycling club named after him, it blew his mind. That Black representation was meaningful when you consider that cycling is still pretty white. I call myself the raisin in milk, right? It's like I'm at a race. I don't see any spectators that are Black. I don't see any officials, race organizations that are Black. I don't see any Black cyclists. And I'm just like, I'm the raisin in milk. I'm Major Taylor right now, you know? And what does that feel like? It sometimes is numbing. And in challenging times, Major has been his moral compass. Because... Believe it or not, forced crashes are still a tactic used by riders. Playing it cool can take a lot of effort. I've been in some situations where I just wanted to take my helmet off and my shoes and just like start fighting, you know? But then I literally took a step back and was like, what would Major Taylor do? And I just try to always stay level-headed and think about him. Today, Major Taylor is being honored in the way he'd always deserved. There are riding clubs all over the world that bear his name. In his adopted city of Worcester, Massachusetts, a statue of Major stands proudly at the Worcester Public Library. And to right the wrong of banning him from tracks, in 1982, his hometown of Indianapolis built the Major Taylor Velodrome, where cyclists from all over the world compete. As for Rasan, he uses him as motivation at times, it's like Rasan is racing along with Major. A hundred years later was the first time that I went to the World Championships. And I was like, oh my God, it's destined. Major Taylor went in 1899 and I'm going in 1999. This, this is it. The year that I went there was something that like took over me. I was like, his presence is definitely here. Major Taylor's hope was that through his greatness, he'd be able to make a mark on the sport he dedicated his life to. Well, he may not have seen it in his lifetime, but we're seeing that imprint today. From the buildings that bear his name to Rasan honoring him and continuing his legacy on the track. No one is keeping Major Taylor out of cycling anymore. on the next episode of They Did That. Ultimately, that's the fight that Elijah McCoy faced. He was an intelligent human being, but he was living in an era that did not respect him as a human being. They Did That is presented by me, Takara Small. This episode was written and produced by Tiffany Walker. Our associate producers are India Whitkin and Serena Chow. This episode was edited by Grant Irving and Tiara Darnell. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. Engineering and sound design by Rick Kwan. Our production coordinator is Lily Hambly. And our original theme song is by Cedric Wilson. Special thanks to Lynn Tolman of the Major Taylor Association. Have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. 
With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.